everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Alameda County Public Defender Brendan Woods. He's the former president of the California Public Defenders Association and remarkably, he's the only black chief public defender in the state of California. Welcome to our show, Brendan. Great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So we just ran this story this morning. Um, We can't get police reform through the legislature in California. This year, with all the protests going on, two-thirds majority Democrats in California legislature, what is going on? Uh, That's a massive failure. I I think two things. It's a massive failure on our part, the legislature's part, on the state of California's part, and a massive show of force by law enforcement and police unions. I think the combination of both. And they were very good with regards to stalling that legislation and not getting it through. Uh, I know that COVID did play into that. Uh, We're under a real harsh time crunch, but I think it was really just a show of force and power of the police unions, and maybe even some, even in this time of reform or uprising and, and recognition, uh, there is still some reluctance to really change policing in America. And why is that? Because it seems like everybody in June seemed to recognize that there was a problem with policing, and now in perhaps the most liberal state in the country, we can't even get basic reform? Because, it's, because there's, there's that narrative out there too, right? There's a narrative of, oh, it's just a few bad apples or it's just a few here and there and overall policing is good, overall police are good. And I think we as Americans, citizens, uh, people who live in California, want to believe and feel like the police overall are there to protect us and will protect us. And strangely enough, that is not the case for all Americans. That is not the case for black people in the United States or black people in California. We are in so many ways more scared of the police than we would be of people who are termed quote unquote criminals. And so, you know, I, I kind of want to unpack all of this. Where does this come from? Why is there the seeming battle between people of color and the police. <laughs> How long is that podcast? <laughs> um, and and I, I'm going to say it's probably not a seeming battle. We have to, in this nation, recognize 
the history of policing, the origins of policing, and how policing is really one of the largest and most devastating legacies of slavery that we're dealing with in these times. You know, the way police originated, they were just slave patrols. And so as you have that culture of slave patrols that move from slavery to lynching, black code to Jim Crow, that has been part of the DNA of policing in America. And with that DNA comes a complete dehumanization of black people. In order to abuse black people in that way historically, you don't see them as you see them as other. And that has kind of been the DNA of policing in America. And so it continues to say. And so when they want to stop a black person, um, it is because they are a black person. And when they abuse a black person, it's because they are a black person and not a human being in a sense of a white person individually. And, and so that, that is just the history of the way policing has been done in America. We, African-Americans, black people, are taught from a very young age that you need to be afraid of the police because they will harm you. And as we see, just to close that loop, and we see that playing out now in America. We see that playing out now on Twitter, on our hashtags, on uh, cell phones. You know, before, uh, black people have been saying this sort of abuse has been happening over and over again. Uh, public defenders have been saying this sort of abuse has been happening over and over again. But we couldn't show it and we couldn't prove it. And now we actually can prove it, which is almost in some ways a slap in the face because we can show it now. We can prove it. We have hard evidence to justify these reforms we're asking for and demanding, but they are still not happening. So that goes to a bigger statement about the devaluing of black lives and maybe the importance of the statement Black Lives Matter. And maybe there should be some real action to back that statement up. And it's really interesting for me because I actually got into this space in the first place 15 years ago because of policing issues. And I live in the city of Davis, which is, for those who don't know, a college town. It's heavily white. It's heavily upper class and affluent. And my wife got involved in the Human Relations Commission, and she ends up uh, getting the Human Relations Commission in Davis, a supposed liberal town, shut down by the city council because they asked for police oversight. And so it's been really fascinating to watch everything kind of, kind of come full circle over the last 15 years and come back to this moment where we're actually talking about policing. But it seems like every time we talk about policing, we end up not getting to that next level of police reform. And I agree. And, and, and I'll say, even though I agree, I am also trying to be optimistic and also hopeful about the next session and what we can accomplish. So I want to go back um, and uh, I, I wanted to jump into that issue because it was right on the forefront of everything today. But um, so you're a public defender in Alameda, which uh, for those who don't know, that's Oakland and Berkeley. Um, so what's that been like for you? So I, when I, 
I went to law school to be a public defender. And when I started, the place I really wanted to work was Alameda County. And it had this reputation of being this really great office and which is a prestigious place to work. And so I was fortunate enough to land here. And I think my career here has been pretty amazing and incredible. Even seeing some of the, I guess, outrageous things that have happened here. So for example, when we talk about police misconduct, I was a young public defender during the heyday of the rioters. So the ringleader of the rioters, uh, Vasquez, was on one of my cases. I got dismissed. And talking to him and getting kind of an eerie, creepy feeling that this dude is dirty and no good, and seeing how it all played out in the courts was a pretty um, amazing, pretty amazing. And it's also seeing the transformation um, in Alameda County and Oakland in particular over the last 20 some odd years. Interesting. And maybe even just the, the whole arc of criminal uh, quote unquote justice reform that has occurred since I began practicing to now. And you're pretty outspoken. So I'm, I'm really curious. Have you, has anyone ever tried to rein you in, uh, in Alameda? Yeah, there's a very strong law enforcement voice. And when you buck up against that system, you push back against it, there are going to be people who want to try to keep you in your place. That's come from um, various arenas. Uh, I had my fair share of battles with um, law enforcement leaders, you'd say, and people who don't uh, want to see a system change. So that, of course, there's been pushback, but I think there might be pushback anytime you want to change systems and recreate systems and reimagine systems and maybe even destroy some systems. And there are some people who really, really would prefer the status quo. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, there's an added element to that, uh, me being a black chief public defender. You know, I'm the first black chief public defender in the history of Dalvin County, which is actually shocking when you think about Oakland, um, Berkeley, liberal part of the state, home of the Black Panthers. You think that it's embarrassing that it wasn't until 2012 that a black person held this position. It was shocking. And then to be also the only black chief public defender in the state of California is also shocking. And as a black person, as a leader, you do come under certain scrutiny. You do come under a certain magnifying glass, and your actions are probably, probably more closely watched. And there are people who are always trying to undermine you. But I think I feel like in this course, in this action, my primary goal, my driving mission has always been to advocate for my clients, to advocate for poor black and brown people who have not had that strong advocate in their corner and to make sure that everyone in my office is doing that and to really raise the level of practice of public defenders throughout the state and the nation. That's, that's the goal. That's the, the mindset because it should be, it should not be these two systems of justice that play out in our courts. No one for the rich and one for the poor. It should be absolutely one. So the goal of public defenders should be equalizing. The goal should be providing zealous, excellent advocacy. We should be really, really going all in for our clients every day with the proper resources. And in doing so, by doing that, we're also fighting economic injustice. We're fighting racial inequality. Those are the tenets of what we're doing as public defenders. So how well do you think you've done in Alameda in terms of instilling that mindset into the people that work for you? I think we've done extremely well. I, I am 
extremely proud of the people who work here. I'm proud of a lot of the defenders of the state, but um, within my office, the public defenders we have are top notch. And prior to becoming the chief public defender, I was the hiring attorney. So I've been hiring people for now over 10 years, and we've developed a really strong, robust, zealous group of public defenders that I'm extremely proud of. So, um, you know, I was a friend of Jeff Adachi in San Francisco who passed away last year. And, you know, um, after he died, I I read a lot of the write-ups on him. And he really went about changing the culture of what a public defender was. And I, I was wondering if you were able to kind of talk about that and how you've kind of picked up the torch for him uh, statewide. Yeah. Um, so I, I knew Jeff well. We were friends. I think Jeff was an amazing defender. He was a pioneer. He had incredible energy, incredible spirit. And this dedication to the work and our clients was top-notch and it was just amazing. And some of the strengths is that he was able to use tools like the media extremely well. He was excellent about messaging the importance of public defense. Yet Jeff used his platform as an elected. Even in a liberal city like San Francisco, he was able to use that platform and leverage it extremely well to have that position be one of power and influence. And that's a real place where we should all be striving to be as chief public defenders. And when it comes to uh, carrying the torch, I, I'm honored to that hopefully I'm doing that. But, you know, Jeff and I were also kind of competitors. <laughs> we, we would talk all the time. Uh, we would try to one-up each other all the time. It was like he was the big brother and I was the little brother coming up. It was like, uh, I don't know if you want to compare, like Michael Jordan and Kobe while trying to be the next one. Uh, and we'd have battles and try to up each other all the time. The competition was great. And, and he was just a mentor, too. And I think uh, I remember the first time I met Jeff, and it was he wasn't the public defender then. He was giving a talk. I believe it was Hastings, or maybe USF in my school. And he was standing in the corner, and he just had this swag. He had his hair was slicked back. He had his trench coat on, his suspenders, and his tie. He's wearing his Amani suit, and this looking fly, like dope. And I was like, who's that dude? I want to be like him. Uh, and he just made being a public defender really, really cool. And I, I remember our encounters. I remember our talks. And he was just a, just a, a really great guy. And I'm hoping I'm carrying a torch. I'm honored to say that. But uh, there's a still, in that realm, a lot of work that we as defenders need to be doing to make sure we are advocating properly for our clients. And talk about what the difference is, because he's an elected public offender. San Francisco has the only elected public defender in the state, maybe the country. And you have to be appointed uh, by the Board of Supervisors, correct? That's correct. So how yes, does that change your job, or does it? Well, I think it changes it in several ways. So I think technically my, my boss, my supervisors, are my bosses. The five Board of Supervisors are the ones I report to. But there's just strange dynamics because ultimately I represent clients who are people who will need our services. I think they're ultimately the people who I need to answer for, and that dictates our practice. But beyond that, yes, um, 
the Board of Supervisors here in Alameda County are my bosses, which is very different than being an elected where there is there isn't that layer of perhaps supervision that exists. And that level of supervision differs depending on where you're at. If you're in a more conservative county, uh, you may have less ability to move and create change and to advocate in a way you might like. If you're in a more liberal county, yes, you might have that ability. But um, it's not very common to have an elected public defender like Jeff Adachi, who uses platform so well and so great about messaging what public defenders do. You know, there are public defenders throughout the state who are the nation that are elected, and some don't use their platform. They're elected in very conservative parts of the county, and they have positions in which they are accountable to an electorate who does not support public defense, and their platforms are such where they do not support the reputation that they should be providing for their clients. Um, and and one of your big platforms, you use Twitter a lot. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm going to read a, a tweet that uh, caught my attention a, a few months ago. This was from June. But you said, I've been accused of being an angry black man, criticized for being too aggressive. Well, I am black and I am angry and I have no choice but to aggressively fight for our clients to aggressively fight to end systemic racism and, and white supremacy. Can you elaborate? What are you thinking there? Uh, what are you trying to do? And what's driving that anger and passion that you have? I think that anger comes from a lot of places. I think it comes from being black in America. It comes from working in this criminal system for so long and seeing how it is extremely difficult to actually obtain justice. It comes from seeing so many people go to prison who are smart, intelligent, compassionate men and women, and they are wasting their potential, um, not wasting their lives because their lives are valuable, but they're wasting their potential because they have so much to contribute to society and they're locked up in a jail cell. And the way we as a society treat public safety by taking black and brown people and locking them up in cages in mass, um, that makes me angry. And that's where that anger comes from. It comes from the way policing is done in the United States. That makes me angry. Uh, the way I will say I was treated by police when I was younger makes me angry. And as I see, the more I do this work, how hard it is to really create change and to uh, get people to realize the way they are practicing justice doesn't apply to everyone, it makes me angry. And so I guess that's where it comes from. There's probably more personal reasons too behind it, but that's what drives me. And this, when you think about how we as a nation are so addicted to incarceration, uh, there's got to be strong forces working uh, to prevent that. And then and then finally, just the racism that exists um, in this nation, the racism that exists in our courts, that exists in this criminal system is overwhelming. It's foundational. It's systemic. And we have to be fighting against that every single day. And and how do you view your role in in that? I mean, obviously, you're leading an office. Uh, you're you're really fighting this on a individual level, though, right? Client by client. I, I think we are fighting client by client, but we're also 
begin to branch out and do it um, more globally. So fighting client by client, guests in the courtroom, being present and visible in Sacramento with regards to um, legislation and trying to change the whole conversation and dialogue around how we practice criminal defense and administer justice in California. And back in March, you called Santa Rita Jail a monster. And that was actually before COVID hit. In, in what ways do you view Santa Rita as a monster and how does it speak to mass incarceration? So Santa Rita Jail, uh, some people know, don't know, is the third largest jail in California, the fifth largest jail in the entire nation. It can hold almost 4,000 people. It is considered to be a mega jail. It is a monster. When I say that, just the sheer size is a monster. And as we know, Santa Rita has one of the highest rates of in-custody deaths for county jails in California, and it's been the recipient of numerous lawsuits. So when you add that level to it, it's a monster. And then when you add this final piece to it, which is the racial disparities, which isn't just Santa Rita's fault, but it's kind of the county's fault, um, maybe the prosecutor's fault and the police, the police department's fault, a Santa Rita jail right now is 48% black. Alameda County is 11% black. That makes it a And we see stats like that throughout California. Um, you know, for instance, uh, my public defender uh, a few months ago, as you know, got in trouble because she pointed out uh, that the Yolo County Jail was 28% black and the DA decided it was a good idea to push back against her. We know what San Francisco looks like. It, it's uh, heavily disproportionately black. Why is that? How do and how do we fix that? I think that goes back to your initial point about police. The, the, the entry point for incarceration is police. The next level is prosecution. The final level is what we do in courts and judges of incarceration. But the first level is police. You've got to undo that piece right there. You've got to attack that piece right there. And the second layer is prosecution. And I think, as I, I knew, knew this would come up as a topic, and I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm actually giving a talk next week at UC Davis. And um, the title of the talk, you like this, is um, A Riot is the Language of the Unheard. Is Racial Justice Possible? And I've been kicking that question around in my head. Is, is it really possible? Can, can we get there? And I've come down, I kept coming down to our words and thinking it's going to take a real recognition. Uh, we have to recognize our racist past. We have to recognize the financial incentives that are built in this incarceral system. We have to recognize how the system dehumanizes people. And we have to focus on that. If we're not ready to call out and admit that the systems we built for justice here in California and the United States are built on racism, we will never, ever fix the problem. Never fix the problem. And then after that, We've got to talk about redistribution. We've got to redistribute the money that we are spending on mass incarceration. This beast that keeps incarcerating people at a high cost. It is a business, and we've got to attack that. And we've got to reimagine how we move forward. Right? How do we move forward? Do we implement a Norway model with regards to prisons? Do we completely reconstruct? 
of itself should be being removed from uh, society as opposed to being removed and humiliated and degraded and being put in a cell with someone else at six by eight. There's so many things we can be doing better. One thing that I always run into is people believe that uh, there's disproportionate policing because there's disproportionate crime. But if you actually break down the stats on crime, you discover that it's there are some areas where there's disproportionate crime, but look at drugs. Um, blacks and whites use drugs about the same rate. Uh, whites may even use it at a higher rate. And yet 80% of the people that go into the system are black rather than white. Um, and that has to do with where police decide to enforce the law, correct? And not just where, but who they decide to enforce the law against. Correct. Right. Who were they policing? So you, you, know, you have a black kid walking down the street in front of Lake Merritt and a white kid walking in front of Lake Merritt. Who's going to get stopped? The black kid. All the time. But you can't get white people to understand this point. And, and it's frustrating for me, and I'll bet it's doubly frustrating for you. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And all we can do is keep messaging, pushing, and trying to get people to see where the real issues are. And then another big issue is that once they get arrested, the black person is far more likely to be prosecuted if he's prosecuted, he's far more likely uh, to be found guilty either through a plea or through a trial. And if he's found guilty, he's much more likely to serve time. So the system works against the black person all the way through. And, and with the examples you gave right there, there are so many layers to that. So uh, let's, I'm going to try to unpack that. Uh, as I can. So we talk about the prosecution and the, per the black person is in custody. Most often they're in custody because they can't afford bail. So we have this system of cash bail that is put in place that is clearly racist, right? It, it, it preys on the people who cannot afford to bail out. Then we get to the next layer of that where whether they go to trial or not. So they're, if they're stuck in custody, they're going to more likely take a plea bargain to get out of jail and get on probation or to reduce their exposure to time they'll serve in jail by taking a plea deal. Once again, um, disproportionately affecting black and brown And then we look at the amount of money spent on policing, prosecution, and probation and systems of control as compared to what's spent on their defense. The counties, it is, it is an enormous difference. Most counties are spending between the DA's office and the defense attorney's office is two to one. And that's not even including the police department. So if we look at our priorities and where we land, we often can follow the money. And I think that's a really important point. And I think a lot of people uh, lose track of a key point is that not only is it two to one, and in some places it's more like three to one, uh, between the public defense and the DA, but the DA has all these resources that don't even factor in. So they have the whole police force that's able to do their investigations. Whereas if your office wants to do it, you have to have your uh, 
investigator look into the matter. You can't rely on the police to do that. Correct. Correct. So when the case comes to the prosecutor's office, it's almost always already packaged for them to charge case and move forward. All the investigations have already been done by the police department. When we get the case, we have to begin to build the fence from scratch. We have to talk to the client and figure out what the hell really happened here. And how can we defend you? Now, do you feel like you have enough resources to fight this fight? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I mean, so we are resourced okay. We're resourced, I think, maybe better in some offices. But when you said enough resources to fight this fight, not even close. Not even close. And, and, and I want to think about that, too. The resources that are necessary to fight this fight, to fight this fight against mass incarceration, are pretty, um, maybe enormous might be the right word. They're significant, what we need, because the resources on the other side are so overwhelming. The resources to build and fund Santa Rita Jail, that, that monster of a jail, is overwhelming. Overwhelming. I believe the sheriff's budget right now is in the range of $430 million. Our budget is about $42 million. And that's not even factoring in the budget for all the police departments, like Oakland Police Department, that's $90 million. And the DA is $80 million. That is so much overwhelming power that we're up against. And it's so much money, too. Yes. So that, that's, that's, that's why my R is talking about redistribution. If you just think about that money, um, fraction of that money placed in schools, fraction placed into uh, resources for kids after school programs. Uh, There's it, so many ways you can spend that money on the community. Uh, redirect community-based organizations. There's so much, so many ways that we can have a real tangible impact on the community as opposed to police and incarceration. I don't know what it costs in your jail, but I know at CDCR it's like $85,000 a year to house one inmate. And the incredible thing, if you think about this, is that you're spending more money to incarcerate somebody than, than somebody who goes to Harvard spends in a year to get educated. That's absolutely correct. That is the it's problem great because if we spent that money on the front end we may not have this problem right exactly exactly so, so going back to your question it, it, think about that it's enormous the, that we, the money we don't have to do the work is enormous. and I, I always think about how being a public defender in some ways is a real war on poverty, where we are trying to make sure our clients get the same resources they would as if they were wealthy. So there shouldn't be a difference between my poor black client from, say, East Oakland as they go through the system and some rich white kid from Piedmont. There should be no difference. And the goal for me is to expand that in multiple areas, multiple arenas. So, yes, provide a great criminal defense. So they, they get superior legal representation in the criminal arena. But then, if they have something from this criminal case that's going to affect their immigration, 
able to provide them with a defense there. If there's going to be something that's going to affect them getting a job, to be able to defend them there and help them keep their job, uh, to defend them to lose their housing. Now that's, for me, that's the ultimate goal is to be able to defend our clients from any sort of collateral consequence that stems from this criminal case, be able to advocate for them in all the arenas as if they were um, rich and had unlimited resources. That's kind of the goal. Now, I just want to close this circle because I think it's a really important point that a lot of people don't understand. And that is that you guys are actually probably better off than maybe 90% of other public defender offices in the state of California. While you don't think you have enough money, and I get it, um, you're way better off than some of the places I've read. You're a passionate advocate. Um, you know, I live in a county where public defenders have a passionate advocate. I've worked in San Francisco where they have passionate advocates. But across the rest of the country, you read these horror stories where either they don't have public defender offices and they end up uh, contracting with these uh, attorneys. Some of them aren't even criminal attorneys for, you know, pennies on the dollar. Um, and some of these people have ridiculous caseloads, you know, hundreds of cases every year. That's what we're really up against, right? Yes. Yes. I always say uh, it's about our priorities. You know, where do we choose to spend them? Uh, who has the, in some ways, sometimes the biggest voice in the room? And often it's not the communities we represent. Uh, it's the law enforcement voices who people listen to. And if we listen to those voices, we're not going to get to the root causes of the problem. We're not going to do it. Uh, there's that saying, those close, close to their problems are close to the solution. Our clients and communities that are impacted are close to their problems and solutions. And we need to be funding resources for them. Whether it be defense, uh, whether it be civil legal aid, uh, whether it be other resources in the community, that's what we should be putting in. So my last question to you is, of all the reforms that are on the table right now, what do you think the most important to get done the soonest is? Wow. That's a great question. And it's hard for me to answer that. I think, I think bail reform is the biggest one to get done soonest. I think that has the largest, biggest, and most immediate impact. Because people are out of custody, they don't get that same sort of pressure into resolving their case. They're able to fight their case. But there, there are so many reforms. You know, one of my big passions has been jury reform, uh, making sure that juries are representative, making sure that uh, black people don't continue to be excluded from jury service. Uh, there, there's so many ways it's occurred in trying to fix that. And our idea of justice in this nation is about having a jury of your peers, and this doesn't exist. You know, black people are continually removed from jury service over and over again for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue that, uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to cover because uh, too often the notion of jury of your peers is a um, fantasy. It's a complete fantasy. It doesn't exist. 
Well, it's been great talking with you, Brendan. I, I want to thank you for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. It's been great. This has been Everyday Injustice. That was Brendan Woods, the public defender in Alameda County, a passionate advocate for criminal justice reform. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.